Our scripture reading comes from Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the, the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, and one's life does, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, and I will build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So this is the one who so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for these great uh, parables that we've been able to look at the past couple weeks, Father. Thanks uh, for the way they communicate truth uh, in a way that not just speaks to our minds, Father, but how they also speak to our hearts and our affections and our will. So we pray that this parable, Father, this passage of Scripture uh, would, would shape our hearts, that we would encounter you here this morning through the instrument of your word, Father, uh, and that we would be changed. So let us hear your voice. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, they say uh, when you're at parties that you should never bring up uh, money and politics, Right? Well, that's probably very true about sermons, too. You probably should never preach sermons about money. You should probably never preach sermons about politics. Now, if you know me, I'm not a particularly uh, political person, so I don't often uh, preach about political things, probably never preach about political things. But I am willing to preach at least somewhat on the topic of money, and that's because if you read the New Testament, and even in the Old Testament, uh, Christ talks about money all the time, and our passage like that is no different. So we're going to give it a go this morning, despite, uh, despite the challenge that it is to preach about that, despite the fact that I'm somewhat sleep-deprived because of what's going on in my family. Uh, but we're excited to jump into this, so let's have a go at it. In 1999, a uh, Harvard economist uh, did a study. Her name was Juliet Shore, and she did a study that, uh, that w- dealt with America's spending habits, okay? And she researched for years, and she revealed that two-thirds of all Americans with an annual income over $75,000. Now, if you take inflation, that would kind of figure out to today to being around $107,000. So she revealed that two-thirds of Americans with an annual income that exceeds $107,000 a year felt that they would not be satisfied until their salaries were at least 50 to 100% greater than what they currently were. It's pretty substantial. Think about yourself for a moment. We've all had tough moments where we've looked at our checkbooks and we've wondered kind of uh, where the next uh, bill is going to be paid. 
We've all felt like that if we had just a little bit more, just a smaller cushion in our finances, then we could just relax. But the question that's important to ask ourselves is what sort of dollar figure would it take for us to feel satisfied with our lives? You see, the temptation for all of us would be to think that a passage like this that we just read or a topic like this is ultimately all about the idea of greed. Now, greed is clearly widespread in our culture. It plays a large part in the thinking of our world. It sometimes plays a large part in our own personal thinking. But if you define greed, you define it as the kind of inordinate desire uh, that exists in our hearts to have that which we just don't have. It is a selfish desire that often extends itself beyond uh, our normal, reasonable selves. When we think about greed... We think about caricatures. We think about Veruca Salt in uh, Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory when she looks at her dad and she says, I want an Oompa Loompa now, Daddy. Get me that Oompa Loompa now. We think of these kind of extreme uh, characters when we think about the idea of greed. But the reality is, is that greed is more often a silent vice that absolutely grips our culture and probably grips our own hearts from time to time. One writer said that greed is a fat demon with a small mouth, and whatever you feed it is never, ever enough. You see, that's the thing about greed. It's never satisfied. It's just the opposite, actually, of satisfaction. It's actually perpetual dissatisfaction. Horace said, he who is greedy is always in want. This might, this might be why it's considered one of the, the seven deadly sins that we all know about, probably because there is simply no end to it. There is no satisfaction. There is no ultimate fulfillment to our greed. We've all heard of, of Jim Carrey, the actor, right? Well, he said something that I thought was really interesting one time. He said this. He said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it is not the answer. Jesus is teaching his disciples when he is confronted by a man who had a problem. In the ancient world, uh, rabbis or teachers would be followed around by people and they'd present questions. They'd present quandaries to rabbis, to these teachers, in hopes that the rabbi would help them in whatever situation they were being confronted with. Well, this man's particular request of Jesus was that he would help Jesus in a situation with his brother. His brother had an inheritance, and this man wanted more of the inheritance from his brother. Now, most likely his request is not coming from some place of injustice or because he's been victimized by his brother. Instead, his desire is to gather more than he had a right to. So he wanted Jesus to help him circumvent the normal cultural customs 
so that he could get more inheritance from his brother. You'd think Jesus would confront head on the man's greed in this situation. Jesus knew his heart. He knew what was happening in this man's heart. So you figure that that Jesus is going to confront his greed. But instead, what Jesus does is he tells this man a parable. He tells him a parable in order to communicate a truth and in the process expose what is really going on in the heart of this man. Instead of attacking his greed head on, what Jesus does instead is he attacks the sin that is behind the sin. The sin that is motivating the sin of greed in this man's life. You see, all of us are really complex creatures. We are like onions. We have all sorts of layers that we can peel off and lots of complexities. We are uh, people that desire things, but desire things out of different motives. We operate out of different stories and things and experiences that have happened to us in our lives. So what Jesus does is he, he teaches to the deeper narrative in the story of this man. He addresses his deepest desires. He addresses something deeper. He addresses the desire or sense of security that this man ultimately wants. He's addressing his place of ultimate trust. You see, all of us are at our fundamental core levels. We are desiring creatures. All of us desire all sorts of things every day. Our desires are the things that wake, up, wake us up in the morning and motivate us to do all sorts of different things. And our desires ultimately are meant to be fulfilled in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, God desired us, he, he created us to be desiring beings, but he created us to have those desires fulfilled in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. But in our sin, we do something very different. In our sin, instead of going to God to fulfill our desires, what we do is we instead run to God replacements to fulfill our desires. One of those most fundamental desires that we all have is the desire for security. We all want to know ultimately that things are going to be okay. That at some point we're going to be safe. That things are under control so that we no longer have to worry. We all want a sense of security. The question then becomes, where do we go in order to fulfill that desire? Where do we go in order to get that sense of security? Or better question is, what are we trusting in to fulfill our desire for security? So in our parable, Jesus doesn't just address this man's greed. Instead, he addresses the fundamental place of trust in the heart of this man. He addresses where this man goes, what God replacement he goes to, to fulfill his desire for security. In the process, what it does is it exposes in us the question of where do we go with those desires? Where do we go to get that sense of security that we so deeply want? 
And what I'd like to look at just really briefly from our narrative is, is a comparison. And that is a comparison between a solid foundation of trust and security versus a shaky foundation of trust and security. So let's look first at what Jesus exposed as a false security in this man and what Jesus reveals to us is a shaky foundation for our lives. To borrow from another parable that Jesus uh, used in in teaching a very similar thing, he said this, a foolish man builds his house on sand. A foolish man builds his house on sand. I've been taking a a, a webinar recently um, that is taught by a, a Christian economist, and he he teaches about a Christian way to think about economics and the way we uh, care for people and the way we think about uh, our wallets and money in our culture today. And he said that economists in our culture tend to reduce human beings to one dimension. They tend to reduce human beings to the dimension of materialist creatures more than anything else. And what that plays, what narrative that tells us is that the key to human flourishing or the key to experiencing life abundantly is defined purely in material or economic terms in our culture. Very simply put, it means this. Life is found in getting more stuff. That's what our culture teaches. That's what our economists reduce us to as materialist categories. Jesus tells a story about a wealthy young man who may think in a very similar way. The passage tells us that his wealth is growing rapidly. He's very successful and he's become so wealthy that he has no place to store all of his stuff. He has so many crops that he has no place to store them all. So he enters into a grand plan to tear down the existing barns that he had and to build bigger ones in their place to hold all the stuff that he has accumulated in his wealth. And Jesus says a few things in this parable that in some ways are easy to miss, but they are things that Jesus wants us to see are byproducts to building our lives on a shaky foundation. He wants us to see the symptoms of this disease of building our lives on a shaky foundation. The first thing he wants us to see is that this man was trapped in self-absorption. Some point today, go back and read the passage on your own and count all the first person pronouns. Remember that from English class? Count all the first person pronouns that you read in this passage. If you read it in its original Greek, you would be astounded. It's even more pronounced how many first person pronouns are in this passage. In fact, this man is so captured by himself that he ends up even beginning to speak to himself. He has a soliloquy in this parable. He says in verse 19, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. You see, this man is a a characterization. He's a characterization of someone who is bent in on themselves. 
Someone who is absolutely absorbed with themselves and their own pleasure and their own joy. He's the one taking selfies and posting it on social media of his big barns and all the stuff that he has accumulated in his life. He believes that his success is due to his own ingenuity. When reality, it is due to God, the one who controls the harvest. He believes that his good fortune is all about himself. He's become trapped in his own self-absorption. Jesus also wants us to see that in the process of this, in the process, the poor are neglected. The poor are left out. You see, in the Old Testament, you see this in the New Testament too, there were specific provisions that God Uh, put into the fabric of his people to care for the poor and oppressed in their midst. In the Old Testament, you read about wealthy landowners who who were commanded by God not to harvest certain portions of their fields. Why? So that the poor could come and glean from those fields. We don't so much see it when we read this passage in our current context. But when Jesus had shared this parable with that first century context, they would have been horrified at how callous this man was to the poor that was around him. You see, wealth was given with the intention that it was to be a blessing to others, that others would be blessed out of excess. And the first hearers of this parable would have reacted to how callous this man is to the poor that were around him. Instead, he'd become blinded. And he felt like his wealth was purely for his own pleasure. Instead of considering how he could bless others with his wealth, he only wanted to hoard it for himself. He was a criminal hoarder in this passage of the wealth that God had blessed him with. So Jesus is telling us that the poor are neglected in this process. Jesus also wants us to be reminded of the fleeting nature of life. Look at verse 20. God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? This man's life was going to be demanded of him that very night. And what it reminds us is this thing called life that we all have is very fragile. None of us have a gift certificate in our pockets that guarantees us tomorrow. We never know when our life could be demanded upon us. The scriptures say our life is like a vapor. It is here today and gone tomorrow. But this man had forgotten that. The last byproduct of a shaky foundation may be the most serious. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool. This man, this passage is even called the parable of the rich fool. Now, when we say fool in our culture, it probably doesn't mean a whole lot. We just kind of call each other fools and it's no big deal or whatever it is. And we just kind of throw that word around. But in Jesus' day, that, that word had much more of a serious indictment on someone than we first realize. Pro, or Psalms 14.1 says, A fool says in his heart that there is no God. 
So a fool in scriptural terms is one who practice, who in their practice denies the very existence of God. You see, this man's wealth had distracted him from his greatest need. He is considered to be a fool because he could, could not see that his wealth was actually a very shaky foundation. It could not provide for that thing which he most needed, and that was a right relationship with God. And when death, the great equalizer, comes, this man was found wanting. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't feel particularly wealthy. I don't look at my checkbook and say, man, I'm, I'm a very rich person. But the reality is we live in a cultural moment where it is one of the wealthiest cultural moments in all of human history. Yet sometimes, we, somehow we look at the passages of scripture that deal with wealth and think they only have to do with that upper 1% that exists in our culture, when reality, it probably has a lot more to do with us than we realize. We have to ask ourselves, has our wealth done the same thing to us that it did to the man in this story? Has it turned us into fools? Fools who have lost touch of our profound need for Jesus Christ. Have we built our lives on a foundation that is shaky at best? In the moment of death and judgment, the man in our story was left wanting. Just like the the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, his pride had brought him down before God. His foundation had proved to be shaky and he was found wanting at the moment his life was taken from him. Tim Keller uh, wrote a book years ago uh, called Counterfeit Gods. And uh, if you're looking for a cheerful book, it may not be the best one to pick up and read because it starts in a very sobering way. It starts by telling the story of about five or six different men uh, who worked on Wall Street and were very successful investors, very successful men in the financial world, who when the recession hit, all took their lives. One hung himself in his office, another jumped out of a building. Why? Because they had built their lives on a foundation that was shaky. They built their lives on a foundation that was inadequate to support their lives. See, it isn't that wealth is wrong or sinful. It just is the fact that it's simply a shaky foundation. There's nothing sinful about having a robust checking account. What's dangerous is the the temptation to build our lives around it. Because at best, it offers us a shaky foundation, it cannot handle the weight of a life built upon it. It can't give us what we so desperately desire and need with our lives. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. See, one of the things that the scripture is clear is anything that is not God, 
is considered to be a shaky foundation for our lives. Whether it's our wealth, whether it's our status, whether it's our resume, whether it's a relationship we have, anything that is a God replacement is not powerful enough to build a life on. But thankfully, what the story of the scriptures, what the gospel tells us, is that there is a strong foundation that we can build our lives upon. Matthew 7, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Friends, we were designed to build our lives on a relationship with Jesus Christ. We were designed to have our desires ultimately truly fulfilled in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because Christ only tells us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He's the only one that tells us that that he holds us in the very palm of his hand. Though life is full of all sorts of surprises, we don't even know what the rest of the day has in store for us. Nothing takes God by surprise. He is in complete control. And he promises to be faithful to you and I to the very end. He promises to fulfill all of our desires, both in this world and also in the next And he tells us that because the gospel is good news. The gospel tells us that Christ was willing to leave all of the wealth of heaven. It tells us that he was willing to to set aside all the riches and bliss of an eternal presence with God the Father in heaven. It tells us he who was rich chose to become poor on our behalf. He who'd experienced the full acceptance and, uh, and affection of God the Father suffered rejection and execution at the hands of those that he had created. He allowed his life to be taken from him so that we could have eternal life. He left the security of heaven so that you and I could experience true security In this life, he took the punishment, he paid the debt, he satisfied the wrath of the Father so that our lives could be secure, and so that one day we could experience the riches and the bliss and the wealth and the excess of an eternity with him. No other foundation can do that for us. So the question is, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your wealth to bring life and security? Are you trusting in your popularity or your status? Are you trusting in some relationship? Are you trusting in your own intellect or your perceived sense of goodness? At the end of the day, all of them are God replacements. And all of them are shaky foundations. Instead, trust 
Christ. He was the only one who was willing to give himself for you. He is the only one that offers a true foundation. He is the only one that is the true source of life. Let's pray.